0: Our scripture passage this resurrection Sunday morning is John chapter 17. John chapter 17 verses 20 through 26. We've been going through Christ's high priestly prayer in the gospel of John. And so far Christ has prayed for himself and Christ has prayed for his disciples But now, in this moment, Christ looks forward into the future, and he prays for us. Hear now the reading of God's word. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. That is the word of God. May he bless it. Through the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father. We ask. That you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. That we may see in it. A loving Savior. And a loving Father. Who ordained before time to redeem us and save us. By the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His Son. That we may come. To know more of what it means to be united to Christ. To have communion with you and with one another. To have the promise of eternity. And that by knowing you, knowing your love for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. An intercessor. An intercessor is a person who intervenes on behalf of another, especially by prayer. And we have a word for this we call it intercessory prayer. It's when we pray for someone else concerning their sickness or cancer or their financial hardship or their situation or circumstance. You see, when someone intercedes for us in prayer... They are bringing our needs before God because they know only God is capable of working in that situation to bring about God's intended end. But verse 20 says, My prayer is not for them alone, Jesus speaking. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. This is Christ's intercessory prayer for us. But when Christ intercedes for us, he does so as our eternal high priest, who made a perfect atonement to secure our salvation, and is able to save us to the uttermost, because he always lives He prays as the forever representative of his people before his Father in heaven. This is how he prays here at this moment. And you might say, Carrie, why is this a Resurrection Sunday passage? This is before Christ's crucifixion. This is before he's carried away and crucified. But what we see here, what we read here in Christ's prayer for us, it's a foretaste of his heavenly intercession for us, the church, his endless intercession for his people throughout history. Hendrickson writes in his commentary the eye of Jesus in this prayer scans the centuries and presses to his loving heart all his true followers as if they had all been saved at this very moment. You see, what Christ prayed for in this moment was a prayer on the basis of his coming resurrection. And ascension into heaven. And what he prayed for in this moment prior to his crucifixion, he still prays for today and will continue to pray for until he comes again. And Christ prays that the church will be one, will share in his glory, and will know the Father's love. Christ prays that the church will be one, will share in his glory. And we'll know the Father's love. We've got three points this morning. The first is that we would be one, right? Unity. The second is that we would share in His glory. Eternity. And the third is that we would know the Father's love or have knowledge. So let's look at that first point. Unity. Unity. Christ prays for. He prays that we would have. Let's look at the heart of that unity. Verse 21, Christ says that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. The heart of that unity is the unity that Christ has with the Father. The scope of the unity is... That all of them may be one. That there is not a single person excluded from this unity that Christ prays we would have. But all as Christians, all as those who place faith in Christ, would be one. The source of the unity is Christian unity is rooted in Christ's unity with the Father. And the substance of the unity is it consists in union with Jesus and the Father. The mystical union of believers In the same body, the body of Christ is bonded together by the the same mystical union that the Holy Trinity shares. Hutchison writes, as it is the great dignity and privilege of believers to be one, so their improving of this privilege and living in unity is the sum and substance of their happiness and the means of obtaining all of their blessings. Here on this Resurrection Sunday, it is important for us to remember that Christ prayed that we would be one. I would love to be able to say that since the crisis of COVID-19 has dropped upon America and the rest of the world, that it seemed to me that the church was more united But it does not seem that way to me in many aspects. I feel that this crisis has become a, a reason for division. As much as it has been a reason for unity. And May we remember that Christ prayed for us to be one. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, is that prayer... To be answered, did the father answer that prayer? And if he did, then we should be striving to be one, as the Father and the Son are one. That's the heart of the unity. What's the fruit of the unity? The second part of verse 21 says, "May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me." I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. The fruit of the unity, first of all, is that the world may believe. You see, as we live in Christ, we become more like Christ. Faithfully living out that observable oneness with other believers has an evangelistic impact on the world. When the Christian faith is one, when we join hands and lock hands with other brothers and sisters, We are expressing to the world that Christ has bonded us together, that we are one in Christ, and this says something to the world. It's a positive, but this is also why infighting and division is so painful. Infighting and division in the church, in essence, is saying something about Christ which is not true. It divides the indivisible Christ, and it encourages unbelief in those who see it. People outside the church simply say, well, those Christians fight and bicker amongst each other just as much as we do. Why should we join them? People in the LGBT community say, I find more love and care for me inside that community than I ever would in the church, so why should I join them? It's a hard thing to face, knowing that we still do live in a sinful world and a broken world, and that there is disunity often. Expressed in the church, but the spiritual unity that Christ prayed for is still present. It is a reality. It is not something that can be broken. So when it is fractured and broken, we are saying something about the body of Christ, the church, that simply is not true. And we must desire to repent. Repent of that disunity, that infighting. These days online I see more Christians accusing and bickering toward each other than I see words of encouragement or hope. I see more Christians assuming the worst about others' intentions than I do being considerate of others' opinions and perspectives, even if they disagree. We could do with a lot more unity in a time like this if we're going to say to the world that we are united, truly united with Christ. Another fruit of the unity is what Christ says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. So this glory that Christ gives to us, his people, is what makes this true unity so compelling to the world. But the question we have to ask is, what is this glory Christ has given to us? One commentator, Ritterboss, uh, describes it as his all-embracing authority and power and its manifestation during the performance of his task in the world. What does he mean by that? Well, if you ever read the Gospels and you see those moments when Christ teaches and the people say, Wow, he teaches with authority, he teaches with power. That is the glory that Christ has during the performance of his task in the world. And Christ here is saying, I give that glory. To my people, to the body of Christ, to the church. And there's five main things Christ gives to us, his church, by giving us his glory. And Charles Simeon makes these five points. First, that Christ manifests the power of God and gives strength and triumph to believers. Are you feeling weak in these days? Struggling with social distancing and isolation? An inability to connect with others. Christ has given you the power of God. Strength and triumph to you as a believer. Second, Christ exhibits the moral perfections of God. And enables his people to walk just as he walked. And when I stand up here and, and and I point out the reality that Christ has prayed that we would be one, and he says that our oneness is based upon the oneness that he has with the Father, except so often we don't display that oneness, and I call us forward to grow in our displaying of that oneness, to repent of our disunity and our, and our speaking and hatred towards each other and desiring to be loving in our expression and care of other Christians. They will know that we are Christians by our love, I am doing so, not because I believe, that you have the power within yourselves, welled up within you, to strive towards that resurrection life of your own will and volition, of your own power given to you. No, I'm praying those things, I'm calling upon you to do those things, because you have been given the glory by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to walk. Christ walked to live in new obedience. Number three, Christ is the Son of God and He makes believers to be adopted sons of God. We are all brothers and sisters in the family of God. And God has adopted us all. And so as Christ displays the glory of being the Son of God, we in derivative form go around displaying the glory of being children of God. Number four, Christ is one with the Father and confers upon believers the glory of being united with God. We have fellowship with God. Now the question we have to ask ourselves is, can we be in fellowship and communion with God and not be changed? Can someone be hit by a semi-truck, and walk away unchanged, walk away unaffected, walk away as if nothing had happened. We have encountered the living God. We have fellowship with Him through Christ, His Son, and because of that, we have glory. Number five, Christ is King and honors believers with the glory of reigning with God. This is very similar to what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism when it says, why is it important that we are called Christians? And the answer is because we share in the anointing of Christ. Christ's anointing is prophet, priest, and king. We have been anointed to speak of Christ. We have been anointed to bring others the good news of Christ. And we have been anointed to reign with God. What about the sum of this unity? Verse 23 ends this prayer of Christ for us to be united, for us to have unity in the body of Christ with these words I and them, and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me, and I've loved them even as you have loved me. One commentator writes, The apogee of the evangelistic witness of the unity of Christians is nothing less than the manifestation of the love of the Father for the Son as the very same love that Jesus bestows on His people as He saves them from their sins. Maybe that's hard to catch, but a way that I would describe this is the way that our unity evangelizes to the world is because it it displays the love the Father has for the Son and says that the love the Father has for the Son is of the same substance, of the same essence of the love that Christ had for us in dying for our sins and being raised three days later. So when we love one another, when we have complete unity, It tells the world, it shows the world that this is Christ, the one who loved us. Christ also prayed that we would share in his glory his eternity. In verse 24. Continuing his prayer for us, his intercessory prayer for us, based on the coming resurrection and ascension, Christ says, Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you love me before the creation of the world. The first thing that we have to ask is who receives this eternal glory? And Christ says, Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am. Every person whom God intends to save will come to saving faith and then to glory. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says this all those he's predestined, he is justified. All those he's justified, he will glorify. God does not plan and Jesus secure the possibility of salvation. He chooses, he gives, he saves. Another way that we could say it is, on that future day when the book of life is brought out and the roll call is given, there shall be no one who is absent. Who is intended to be there. Who receives this eternal glory. All those the Father has given to the Son. But why does Jesus want them to enjoy eternal glory? He says, and to see my glory, the glory you've given me. You see, it's natural for us to want to share joyous and significant moments of our lives with loved ones. Promotions, graduations, marriages baby announcements, anniversaries. It's also natural for us to be disappointed when COVID-19 takes all those things from us. And that's exactly what Christ is saying here when He says He wants us to be where He is so that we can see His glory. Jesus wants all of us to share in the joy of his ascension to heavenly glory, the triumph of his great day of judgment. That great Puritan writer Thomas Manton said, His heart is not satisfied till we be in like condition with himself. So we are promised that as believers we will see, we will behold the glory of our Savior. Christ has already said, Lord, I'm giving them my glory. But what we have of Christ's glory now is only in part. But on that day when we see him face to face, we will be transformed. We will be transformed. You see, I've often pondered the irony as I'm approaching my graduation day and seminary, and I consider the name of my degree, it's called the Master of Divinity. Who masters divinity? I mean, when do you get to that point? When have you figured it all out? And Thomas Manton has something to say about this. He says, we go to heaven to study divinity in the Lamb's face. And so as I'm approaching my graduation and I'm thinking, finally, finally I've mastered divinity. I haven't even scratched the surface. I'm going to be studying divinity with all of you for all eternity. So we've looked at who receives this eternal glory. We've looked at why does Jesus want us to have this eternal glory. But what is the reason for the gift of eternal glory? the glory you've given me because you love me for the creation of the world. One commentator writes, the gift of future eternal glory arises from the past eternal love of the giver. The personal salvation of each believer turns upon God's eternal purpose of love and his only begotten son. What does this say to us? It says the basis of our receiving Eternal glory on that coming day, the coming day of resurrection, is based upon the eternal glory that Christ and the Father shared before time began. We're wrapped up graciously, blessedly, we're wrapped up in the story of God's glory. Christian salvation is not solely the product of time and human development. It is the fruit of the everlasting love of the sovereign God from all eternity. Resurrection Sunday, the day Christ raised, was raised from the grave, is not an accident. It's not a plan B. It happened. Because God, before time began, decreed for it to happen so that we would share in the glory that Christ, His Son, had before the creation of the world. There's this last thing that Christ prays for. He doesn't only pray for the church to be united, to have unity. He doesn't only pray for the church to have eternity a future glory, but he also prays that by our knowledge of the Father, we would come to understand his love. Righteous Father, he says. Righteous Father. Though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them. The knowledge of God is not known to the world because of the present fallen human condition. And when we read these words, the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that, I sent, that you have sent me. We can ask ourselves the question, how can anyone be saved? If the world does not know God, how can anyone be saved? And Jesus' answer is that he knows God. And we know that God sent him. And he revealed God to us. So by grace and through faith, we come to know Jesus as the intercessor. The in-between. The mediator. Through him, we come to know the Father. And we can put it like this. Jesus shows the Father to us. He exegetes the Father for us. If I am looking to understand the Scriptures more, what I do is I go and I find a trusted commentary. A commentary goes through the Scriptures verse by verse and explains their meaning. Some commentaries explain their technological, grammatical meaning by looking at the original languages and showing you the syntactical structure and why it creates this meaning. Some commentaries look more at the application and the sermonic meaning and how you would teach preach a sermon in this way. And, and it shows you how to explain it or exposit the scriptures. These are all important things. And, and what I'm saying is that Christ is the commentary, On God the Father. But unlike all the commentaries that we have now, Christ's commentary on the Father contains no errors, no extrapolations, no guesses, no informed decisions. He is the image of the invisible God. He shows us the Father. And because He knows God. And we know Him. We know God. And what does this knowledge do for us? This knowledge that we have? I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. D.A. Carson, in his commentary, says, Jesus' revelatory work will continue through the Holy Spirit so that God's gracious self-disclosure in his Son will not be reduced to a mere datum of history, but will be a lived experience. You see, we don't only know God because Jesus lived in time and history thousands of years ago. We know God today because Jesus continues to reveal by the Holy Spirit the Father to us. And we're tied through that union to a future blessing that awaits us by the love of God poured out in our hearts. The love God has for His Son is poured out in us. We're loved into holiness, loved into pardon, loved into grace, loved into unity, loved into glory. This is to know God as our Father, deep in our being, and experience His love as an assured presence in the soul. And people of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, do you know God as your Father? Because of Christ, His Son. The resurrected Savior, the Son of God. His work has made us adopted children of God. And we share in all His benefits, all His glory. Christ prays that we would not only know the Father's love for us, but that we would feel it deeply, intimately. Lastly, He prays, and that I myself may be in them. All these realities happen only by our union with Christ. God's love cannot be in us unless Christ is in us. Union with Christ is entered into by believing in him as the one who alone is able to save us from our sins. Christ on this day before he went to the cross, before he was raised three days later, he prayed for us today. April 12th, the year 2020, he prayed that we would be one, that we would share in his glory, and that we would know the Father's love. He interceded for us then. He intercedes for us now, and he will continue to intercede for us until he comes again as judge. And may we on this Resurrection Sunday know how great a blessing it is. What a great blessing it is to have a living Savior who prays for us in the presence of the Father. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that through Christ, your Son, we are united. We share in his glory, and we know your love. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to repent of our disunity, of our hatred of brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray that you would help us as we desire to grow in godliness and holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace that is work, at work within us that we may display to the world the glory and the love of your Son. And we pray, Lord, that we would come to know your love as our Heavenly Father more deeply and intimately through our union to Christ. We thank you for a risen Savior, who prays for us now in your presence. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Join us as we sing, Christ the Lord is risen today.